Good morning. Um, our call of worship today comes from Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7. Uh, this is the NIV version. Hear these words of the psalmist. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Would you please bow your head in prayer with me? Dear Father, um, we do come to worship you, the holy God, creator of the universe, the one who's given us the spirit to reside in each of us, to give us life, to comfort us through our trials, through our disappointments, our pain, our frustrations, to bring us out to the other side, into your glory, into relationship with you. Thank you for reaching down from heaven to earth, providing the way for each of us to be reconnected with you. Words really can't contain how you feel about us. And we're not very good at understanding that. Today, may we hear the words, see your face shining upon us, knowing that you're a good God that likes us, even in the midst of our sinfulness and brokenness. You like us, and you've made a way for us to be with you. So we continue this time in worship of you, thankful and grateful that we can be here as a body and freedom. I pray for the, the junior hires that are on their way back from their trip, that you would protect them, give them safe travels. May the words that they've heard from your scripture over this past several days sink deep into their hearts and into their souls so that they would know that you love them, even as kids. And we pray for the high schoolers that go on a trip in a week, that you be preparing their hearts to hear a word from you. The same word that we all need to hear, that we are loved and we are liked by the creator God of the universe. Be with everyone here today. Be with Bernard as he brings the word to encourage us. May we encourage each other. May we have kind words for one another, words of gratitude, words of thanks, words of appreciation. May we demonstrate kindness to each other as you've given and demonstrated to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Bernard has selected um, the very familiar passage of Numbers 13, 25 uh, through 14, 4 to prepare us um, for his sermon today. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. 
There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw there are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Bernard, would you come and preach to us? Thank you, Chad, for that reading. Yes, from uh, the obscure book of Numbers, not read very often. Uh, well, five years ago, uh, Sue and I spent uh, about 10 days, uh, 10 delightful days, just outside Bordeaux in France. And uh, everywhere we saw signage for Les Chemins de Saint-Jacques de Compostela. Uh, these routes were marked on the map that I was using. Uh, these routes were marked with brass plaques set in the city pavement uh, and also with uh, brass um, scallop shells because that's the uh, symbol of the, the way, the ways of St. James. And these ways, uh, there were several of them, uh, are several ancient paths from across France and beyond into Northern Europe that funnel pilgrims into the more famous Camino de Santiago, the 800 kilometer route across the north of Spain from the Pyrenees uh, all the way to Santiago de Compostela in the uh, region of uh, Galicia in northwest Spain. And the Camino ends at the cathedral in that city, which houses the remains of Santiago of St. Jacob, that is, James the Greater, James the son of Zebedee. And for a thousand years, the Camino has been a pilgrimage route. And nowadays, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims every year walk the Camino, uh, including a number of friends of mine, and perhaps some of you have walked the Camino, or certainly you, some of you, I'm sure, know people who have walked the Camino. Uh, many of them set out alone, but they don't remain alone for long. They quickly form small groups. And usually, I'm told by my friends who've done this, this happens the very first night with the group that you spend that first night in uh, whatever lodging. Um, and then they walk the Camino together as fellow pilgrims. But a quite different scenario is portrayed in the movie The Way from 2010. And it was released under the tagline, life is too big to walk it alone. Yet that's exactly what the main character tries to do. 
So Tom, played by Martin Sheen, sets out to walk the Camino on his own. Well, he has his son's recently deceased ashes with him. Uh, and for most of the movie, he resists all efforts of three others to pull him into their oddball group. He's stubbornly determined to be an island unto himself. Now, I've watched the movie several times. I watched it again on Thursday night, and it just found it painful to watch how stubborn he is that he's going to walk this on his own, despite these three friends who are trying to gather around him. And it's not until two-thirds uh, through the movie that his resolved isolation begins to crack, and he begrudgingly accepts that pilgrimage is best done with others. Now, the Christian life is a pilgrimage. Indeed, the most famous uh, the most influential Christian book after the Bible is The Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan in the 17th century while he was in prison. And it's presented as a dream of a journey by a pilgrim named Christian a pilgr on pilgrimage from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And along the way, he meets various characters who either help him or hinder him in his pilgrimage. And then book two tells us of the pilgrimage of his wife, Christiana, and of their children, who initially had refused to go with him. And book two includes several poems, one of which is very popular in Britain as a hymn. I grew up singing this frequently, and each verse of it ends to be a pilgrim. Now, the book of Hebrews also presents the Christian life as a journey, as a pilgrimage. Jesus has already gone before us as the pioneer and the forerunner. He has entered into God's presence, and we follow him to that same destination. And we make this journey together as brothers and sisters. Now, in last week's sermon, we saw that we, we are God's house, that we are holy brothers and sisters. The Christian life is about we, not just I. And we also saw that there was a proviso to this statement, this status. We are God's house if, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. And this if troubles people. It troubled some of you because uh, you talked with me afterwards about it. <laughs> so there is a condition to our status. There are two things we need to hold on to. The first is confidence, which we saw last week means our access to God's presence through Jesus, our high priest. And through that, through him, boldly we now approach the eternal throne through faith. And the second thing we hold on to is our hope that at the end of our pilgrimage, we will enter God's very presence. That boldly we will approach the eternal throne in person. And in both cases, Jesus is already there, Christ before us. So we already have these two things, access and hope. And we hold on to them as we faithfully follow the path set before us, following Jesus. But there is a danger that we will give up and turn away from our pilgrimage. Hence the several warnings in this sermon. Hence the if in verse six. And the purpose of this sermon, which the author has written to his friends, is to encourage them to persevere together in their pilgrimage. And now, in chapter 3, verse 7 through 4, 13, he gives an extended warning against the danger of turning away, the danger of being unfaithful. 
and he draws on Israel's history to teach them a lesson from the past. So today we're going to consider the first part of this long warning section, chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. And we begin with verses 7 through 11. So the word of the Lord. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now this extended quotation is the second half of Psalm 95. And the first half of that Psalm was our call to worship. And it is indeed a call to worship. We read, come let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. So we are God's sheep. But sheep are prone to wander. Sheep are prone to wander far from their master's voice. They are prone to stubbornly go their own way and to get lost. And in the second half of Psalm 95, the psalmist appeals to the Lord's sheep of his generation to not be like the sheep whom Moses led out of Egypt. Now, in the first part of chapter three, Moses has twice been described as faithful, but he was leading an unruly rabble of sheep. And repeatedly, they rebelled against God and against him, and they wanted to go their own way. And this rebellion started straight away before they had even crossed the Red Sea. They were camped by the edge of the sea and Pharaoh and his army were pursuing them. And the people cried out to Moses, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses told them, don't be afraid, the Lord will fight for you but they were terrified. They were full of anxious fear. And this was just the beginning. God did bring them through the sea in what is the great act of salvation in the Old Testament. God simultaneously saved his people and destroyed the enemy that held them in bondage. But all the way through the wilderness, despite the leadership of the Lord and of Moses, the people grumbled and they complained. And we read about this extensively in Exodus and Numbers. And we find that they kept saying the same few things. First, they kept saying, we're going to die. They accused Moses of bringing them out of Egypt to kill them with hunger or to kill them with thirst. They were afraid God was gonna kill them, even though he provided water and provided manna as food. They were afraid the inhabitants of Canaan were going to kill them. Their anxious fears would not subside. They trusted neither the Lord nor Moses to keep them alive during their journey. Secondly, they reminisced about how good they had it in Egypt. In Exodus 16, we read them saying, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. They never sat around the meat pots in Egypt. <laughs> they were slaves pressed into hard labor on Pharaoh's great building projects. 
And after a year of manna, they complained of this monotonous diet. We read in Numbers 11. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. So repeatedly they said, we were better off in Egypt. We had it so good there. Well, that's revisionist history. They never had it good in Egypt. But they wished that they had never set out on this journey. They were full of regret and wishful thinking. And then thirdly, and a consequence of that wishful nostalgia, they said, we want to go back to Egypt. They rejected all that the Lord and his servant Moses had done for them. They rejected God's salvation. They rejected his good, gracious plan for them. Better the slavery that they knew than the wilderness that they didn't know. Better the taskmaster Pharaoh that they knew than the liberating God that they didn't know. They couldn't walk by faith because they had no confidence in God. They did not know his ways. Now, when God brought them out of Egypt under Moses' leadership, they had two destinations. The first destination was Mount Sinai, there to meet with the Lord. And the Lord had said through his prophet Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go so they may worship me. And they came to Sinai for the Lord said, I brought you to myself. And there at Sinai, he formally took them to be his people, his treasured possession. But they were terrified. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So Moses acted as their mediator, entering God's presence on their behalf. He brought back God's word, which he wrote down as the book of the covenant. The people promised, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Now, as many of you know, the word for obey is also the same word for hear. So they heard God's voice and they promised to keep hearing it, that is, to obey it. And so a covenant was made between God and his people, but they quickly broke that covenant. For 40 days, their resolve was tested as Moses was atop Mount Sinai receiving instructions for the tabernacle in which God would dwell among his people. But they let go of their hope of his return. Moses was nowhere to be seen and they asked for something they could see. They asked for man-made gods. They had heard God's voice, you shall not make for yourself an image, but they stopped listening to that voice, and so Aaron made them a golden calf that they could see. They reverted to living by sight and not by faith, by the eye and not by the ear. The Lord wanted to wipe them out and begin again with Moses, but Moses interceded on behalf of this wayward people and God relented. He spared the people, graciously put his presence among them in the tabernacle. And after nearly a year, they moved on from Sinai. Their second destination was the land of Canaan, which God had promised Abraham long before, a land flowing with milk and honey. They soon came to Kadesh Barnea on the edge of the promised land, and they sent 12 men to spy out the land. And after 40 days, they reported back. And this is what we heard in our scripture reading. They reported that it was indeed a land flowing in milk and honey, but there were giants in the land. And 10 of the spies said, we should not enter for we would be killed. And the other two spies, Joshua and Caleb, agreed that there were giants in the land. But even so, 
they should enter, for God was with them. But the people wanted to choose a new leader and go back to Egypt where life would be better. And again, the Lord wanted to wipe them out and begin again with Moses. And again, Moses interceded. And again, the Lord relented. He forgave them. But there was a consequence that he imposed. That entire generation would perish in the wilderness. They would not enter into the land. So what did they do? They tried to enter into the land on their own and were soundly defeated by the Canaanites. They were recalcitrant sheep. That wilderness generation refused to enter the land because of their unbelief. They were unfaithful throughout their entire pilgrimage from Egypt to the edge of the land. They trusted neither the Lord nor Moses. Again and again, they viewed Moses and the Lord as being against them, not for them. They had nostalgia for the good old days before they started their pilgrimage. They had a selective memory of how good it was before they started following the Lord. They succumbed to a revisionist history. They never had it good in Egypt. But they were determined. They wanted to turn around and go back to Egypt. And a low point is reached when two of the rebel leaders accused Moses in Numbers 16. You have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. You haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. So they redefined Egypt as the land of milk and honey. They rejected all that God had spoken. They would not hear, but instead hardened their hearts. And as a consequence, what they feared happened. They did all die in the wilderness. But it need not have been this way. If they had just listened to God, hearing his word, they would have finished their pilgrimage to the land of promise if they had just known his ways, that he is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That ears but would not hear, they hardened their hearts and refused God and it was they who subsided under their anxious fears. Well, the preacher now applies the lesson of the wilderness generation to his beloved brothers and sisters in verses 12 through 14. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. So he urges them to watch out, to be alert. He warns of the danger of a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So the danger is a lack of faith and a lack of faithfulness. Why would they turn away from the living God? Why would they abandon their upward calling? Well, for similar reasons as the wilderness generation. If they came to doubt the goodness of God, no longer seeing him as for them, but against them. If they were overcome with anxious fears, it would not subside. 
if they were nostalgic for their former life, for how good they had it before they started following Jesus. For any of these reasons, they might turn away. It might be a slow drift, slowly letting go of what formerly they held to firmly, a slow drift away from Jesus and back to their former life. Or it might be a sudden apostasy, an abrupt turning away from following Jesus. Sadly, some of us, I'm sure, know people who have done this. And as I wrote these words, I had people in mind. But the preacher proposes a precious remedy against Satan's devices, to use a Puritan phrase. Verse 13, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, when we come to Christ, it is not the end of our journey of faith. It is just the beginning. It is the beginning of learning to live a life of faith. And we have a lifetime ahead of us in which to follow Jesus. Until at death, we enter into God's rest. And this is our pilgrimage. We don't walk this path alone. We do it together as fellow pilgrims. And we encourage one another to persevere, to remain faithful. Together we keep our eyes on Jesus who has gone before us. And when one of us lags or grows discouraged or feels like giving up, we come alongside to encourage perseverance. And the best way to persevere is to look to Jesus. And this is what the preacher does again and again and again in this book, urge us to see Christ before us. And then a second remedy is to remember our status as participants in Christ. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ. And Paul's favorite way to describe us is that we are in Christ. We have participated in his death and resurrection as symbolized by baptism. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So we participate in him if. So we have another if. And again, it's if we hold on to something, the same verb we had in verse six, where we hold on to our confident access to God's presence and our hope of arrival there at the end of our pilgrimage. This time he calls us to hold on to our original conviction firmly to the end. Now, the word rendered here as conviction in the NIV uh, is difficult to translate. Um, it can be translated as substance or reality. So we can think of it as our conviction of what is ultimately real. For when we turn to Christ, we accept a new reality, a reality that is shaped around Christ himself. And as we pursue our pilgrimage, we hold on to this reality from beginning to end from the moment we confess Christ and start our pilgrimage to the end when we enter into the fullness of that reality, when we enter into God's presence. And such perseverance is faithfulness. And we do this together, encouraging one another not to be seduced or led astray by sin's deceitfulness. We hear and we heed our master's voice and we stay the course. But sin's deceitfulness might try to persuade us of another reality. For the wilderness generation, their reality was what they could see, not God's voice which they had heard. Their reality was their stomach, food and water. It was their anxious fears. And we can easily pursue realities under the name of God. 
as Donald McCulloch describes in his book, The Trivialization of God, we can easily substitute idols of our own making for the living God. We can easily attach the name of God to them. The God of our comfort, that's what the Israelites wanted. The God of our cause, the God of our nation. These can turn us away from the bedrock reality of our participation in Christ. And then the preacher repeats his warning from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. If you hear his voice, we have heard his voice. What God has spoken in these last days to us through his son. We heed the heavenly calling to faithfully follow Jesus. The preacher now adds his own analysis of the wilderness generation using a series of rhetorical questions based on Psalm 95, verses 16 through 19. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So, we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Now notice here that the preacher describes four problems with the wilderness generation. They rebelled in verse 16, they sinned, verse 17, they were disobedient, verse 18, and it was all summed up as unbelief or unfaithfulness in verse 19. In verse 12, the preacher had urged, see that none of you has an evil heart of unbelief that turns away. And he closes verse 19. We see that they couldn't enter God's rest because of unbelief. So the root problem is unbelief. And unbelief is not primarily a failure to believe the right things, to have the right creed or the right theology. Unbelief is primarily a lack of faithfulness, a failure to follow Jesus, to whom we have given our allegiance, whom we have pledged to follow. And such unfaithfulness is contrasted with the faithfulness of both Moses and Jesus at the beginning of chapter three, verses two, five, and six. In faithfully following Jesus, our faithful one, is our earthly pilgrimage, at the end of which lies entry into God's rest. Today, if you hear his voice, today is lasting a long time. After 40 years wandering in the wilderness, the second generation came to the plains of Moab on the east side of the River Jordan. The entire first generation had died except Moses, Joshua, and Caleb and the children. They had all fallen in the wilderness. And Moses reminded the second generation of their parents' rebellion, sin, disobedience, and unfaithfulness. And he said to them, don't be like your parents. Be different. Hear the word of the Lord. And his charge to them to hear the word of the Lord forms the book of Deuteronomy. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. Centuries later, the psalmist urged his generation, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God has spoken to them through the prophets. More centuries later, the writer to the Hebrews urged his generation, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. They have heard his voice, for now in the last days, God has spoken to them by his son. And now we, 2,000 years later, hear the same exhortation, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
And again and again, the preacher urges them to look to Jesus in faith, to follow him in faithfulness, and not turn back in unbelief. Today, for it is still today, we hear this same warning. The Christian life is a pilgrimage. Along the way, there are difficulties and challenges, just as the Israelites faced in the wilderness. Like them, we will face tests and temptations as we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, test and temptation are opposite sides of the same coin. We see this dynamic already in the Garden of Eden. God gave the first human a commandment. Do not eat of one tree. But God stacked the decks in favor of keeping that commandment. There was no need for the human to eat of that tree, for God had provided an abundance for him of all the other trees. But the crafty serpent focused the woman's gaze, her sight, on that one fruit denied. She saw with her eye that it was good and failed to hear with her ear what God had said. Now, God was testing them Satan was tempting them, the object was the same, the fruit of that one tree. God wanted them to succeed, to pass the test. Satan wanted them to fail, to succumb to the temptation, to give in to what she saw and take and eat. This was true for the wilderness generation. God had given them his word, but they did not listen with their ears. Instead, they saw with their eyes, and they acted out of their anxious fears. And instead of God testing them, they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? They didn't have confidence in him. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness where he was tested and tempted. Three times, Satan misquoted God's word, tempting him to autonomy from God, to act on his own. And each time, Jesus accurately quoted God's word from Deuteronomy. He heard God's voice and did not harden his heart. He rejected the temptation and passed the test. He was proven faithful. He had conquered the tempter and was thus able to enter into his public ministry, doing God's mighty deeds. Satan was defeated. And as we make our pilgrimage through life, we will be tested and tempted. But we need to remember that God wants us to pass the test by hearing his voice, and Satan wants to trip us up with what we see. God has provided help for us. He has put his spirit in us. He has given us one another to encourage each other to be faithful. And he has appointed a faithful high priest, Jesus. At the end of chapter two, we read, because he, that is Jesus himself, suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, some English versions translate tempted as tested. Again, because they're the opposite sides of the same coin. Now, God's purpose, God purposes to use the trials of life to strengthen our faith. When we pass the test, our faith grows. But Satan purposes them to destroy our faith. God bids our anxious fears subside. Satan cultivates our anxious fears. I invite the band to come up as I close up here.
let us encourage one another to listen to the right voice as we journey together so that we can faithfully complete our journey and enter into God's rest, as did Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan writes, Now I saw in my dream that these pilgrims went in at the gate, and as they entered they were transfigured, and they had raiment put on that shone like gold. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the city rang again for joy, and it was said within, Enter ye into the joy of our Lord. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.